Welcome to this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. And I'm here with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> it was slightly jollier last I week. I know. Yeah. Should we try it again? No. <laughs> I tried. We will be discussing everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages this week, including an audio interview with the late Hal David. But first, it gives us both enormous pleasure to welcome not just the week's featured writer, Lloyd Bradley, author of such seminal books as Bass Culture and Sounds Like London, but his good friend, Tom Vickers, a legendary figure in the history of Parliament, Funkadelic and all things George Clinton-esque. Welcome, both of you. Great to have you here. No better place to start than with how did you guys know? You've known each other for an awfully long time. How did you? 40 years. It's a transatlantic, funkadelic friendship (laughs) that has lasted four decades. So, who's going to start with the story of how you met? Why don't I start just a little bit and then I'll turn it over to Lloyd because it's pretty interesting. I had come over to the UK with Bootsy's rubber band in the summer of 1978. And it's when I met Vivian Goldman, a number of other writers around the town, and did a lot of press and noticed that there was a real interest in funk in the UK. And a little over a year, maybe 14 months later, George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic were scheduled to come to the UK. And I was brought aboard to become the Minister of Information. To this settle. great title you were given. Yes, did, you, yeah. did you give that title to yourself? I think I did, yeah, if yeah. I recall. <laughs> or maybe Lloyd gave it. You might have. But I came over here. We did a number of dates in Germany and Holland and other parts of Europe. And then we did five, I think it was five nights at Hammersmith. And this is when the spaceship and the whole deal mm-hmm. was happening. So it was sort of a big deal. And I had George in town about, I'm going to say, three or four days before the first Hammersmith show. And we did a a lot of press all over London. All the big, you know, Melody Maker, NME, all that. And then... uh, Cliff White interviewed George. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cliff, one of the greats. I applaud him and miss him. So one day we're going to a magazine called Blues and Soul Magazine. Sure. And we drive up in the limo, and we're getting, you know, to the spot. And all of a sudden, these two fellas come out of the blue, like, oh, wow, hey, you guys are here. Wow. And I'm thinking, these are staffers from Blues and Soul. Well, this is where I'm going to let Lloyd take over. (laughs) (laughs) Very nicely set Uh, up. Well, Blues and Soul was above... A bar called Bradley's Bar, coincidentally, in Amway Street, which is a tiny yeah. Come on, street. you owned it, uh, cool, cool, cool Tempo Records. That's, that's it, that's Contempo yeah. Records yeah. was owned I remember by Contempo. John Abbey of that's right. and Soul. So the magazine offices were mm-hmm. above it. Well, I didn't really know that. I'd been shopping in the record shop regularly. I knew the, this tiny street that this ridiculous metallic gold Bentley that um, I think Tom probably hired for, uh, to move George around in town, you know, that, that had trouble negotiating Hammers. Yeah. It was so small, yeah. right, you know? And it pulled up, and Tom, Graham Betts, who was the 
Pi. press officer for Pi Records because Pi had Casablanca in this country, mm-hmm. so Pi was looking after George's Parliament. So and they got out, and then George got out. Now what it was was my mate Chris, who as he passed a few years ago, unfortunately, but he was a printer, and back then there was sort of there weren't even real big photocopying machines mm-hmm. and record companies or companies in general record companies well used to subcontract their printing would get it done outside and he did a lot of printing his firm did a lot of printing for the record industry and he knew that this visit was on the cards that george clinton was going to blues and soul mm-hmm. to review the singles that was the deal every issue a Famous musician reviewed the singles. Essentially, they sat in a horrible room upstairs from Contempo, listened to a load of singles and passed judgment on them while someone jotted it down. Um, So he said, oh, it's going to this on this date. And I said, great, right. We'll both bunk off work and we'll hang about outside Mm -hmm. to see if we can meet him. (laughs) So we did. You know, we hung about outside. As Tom said, you know, the car pulled up, they got out, and we just sort of came out, I think we'd, we'd just been leaning on the wall or something. It was very funny because then one of the guys from Blues and Soul came down to welcome the party. They thought we were with George and Tom. <laughs> Tom thought we were with Blues and Soul. So so come on, let's get up and get started. So me and Chris followed. Went up and I don't know, I think Tom and Graham were sorting something else out. And they ushered me... George Clinton and Chris into this room to review the singles. <laughs> we had a great afternoon. You know, I'm sitting I can barely believe it. You know, I've got a pile of Funkadelic albums, half a dozen Parliament albums, went to see Bootsy the year before, mm-hmm. you know. And suddenly, I've taken the day off work and I'm sitting in a, a room in Hanway Street above a bar called Bradley's Bar reviewing the singles with George Clinton. Yeah, I couldn't make it up, you know. <laughs> and, uh, then we all went downstairs, finished great time, all went downstairs, you know. The car appeared again. Tom, Graham and George got into it. We said our goodbyes. Bloke from Blues and Soul, Bob Kilborn, I think it was. was yeah, it did, yeah. yeah, Said his goodbyes. Door shut. And then he looked at me and Chris and said, aren't you going with them? <laughs> and we said, no. He said, well, didn't you arrive with them? We said, no. <laughs> we were just waiting outside and we met them. <laughs> Now, the funny thing was, and this is this is why I've stayed friends with Tom all, all these 40 years, because I'm pretty certain he knew something rum was afoot. But um, he never, never grasped us up, you know. He, did, he didn't spoil it, right, Good you know? Man. So they left, and Bob, for Blues and Soul, he said, oh, come upstairs, you know. And he introduced us, the production editor there was a bloke called Jeff who seemed to sort of run things. Can't remember his surname. He was saying, these guys, they weren't actually with them. And Jeff was really kind of impressed that, God, you just blagged your way into yeah. uh, a sense of nobody knew, you know. And we talked to Tom and George about seeing them after a show or something. Oh, yeah, we'd love to meet you guys after a show. I think George was kind of actually very pleased to meet some kind of normal black Londoners, yeah, you know, yeah. this was just just to hang out with us, you know? So we said, oh, you know, and then Bob said something, yeah, I think he's going to meet them after the show, so, oh, look, if you get anything, like, phone it in for, like, news and mm-hmm. all of this. Yeah. And we said, yeah, all right. Then Chris didn't actually want to know, he wasn't interested, okay. you know? And then Bob said, uh, uh, do you want to review some albums? <laughs> and... <laughs> I said, kind of, yeah, right, why not, you know? And so I, I took him home and 
did my best. I mean, I, I would cringe to read these reviews then. We, may, we may find them. Yeah, oh, <laughs> definitely I'll look for them now. I, was, uh, I mean, I'd left school barely literate, so, you know, it was like, doing this, was I just read other ones and thought, oh, this is what I can do, like do, you know, right? And I kind of did all right about them. And then I went up there to give them the albums back because I didn't realise I could keep them. <laughs> Sweet boy. <laughs> I was just astonished. No, no, what you've got is a kid. I was about 20s, very mm-hmm. early 20s. Mm-hmm. And since I was 15, when I got my first job, at least half of my money went on records mm-hmm. every week. So for someone to give you a record, an album, it's more important than giving you money. You know, they could have mm-hmm. given me three quid, but to actually give me an album was just astonishing. I had about five albums. and. I told my mates, I couldn't believe it. What, they gave them to you, you know? <laughs> like this, that free money. You know, and it never occurred to me to ask to be paid yeah. for doing these reviews because I had, I had albums, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that was all brilliant, you know? And then we went to a show and we had tickets for two or three of the shows at Hammersmith. And one we went to, we didn't have tickets. We just went down to see if we could bunk in. And somebody was coming out and said, oh, do you want tickets? And we said, yeah, but we don't want to pay for them. <laughs> And because um, now there's so many different ways to climb into Hammersmith Odeon, there's no point in buying tickets. Right? And um, <laughs> even now, <laughs> so this bloke said, "No, I don't want any money for him." He goes, "My mates let me down, and I don't want to go particularly." You know, it was he was keen on it. No, he can't go. Do you want him? Well, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we went into this show, and at this one, we were, we were sort of quite down the front and George recognised us off the stage and was like waving making signs to us so we met up with him again mm-hmm. at the Savoy wasn't we were staying at the, the Savoy, Savoy which was pretty mind what was happening in about two days basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so we went uh, we went back to Savoy and we just were in the sort of lobby you know yeah. we're talking to George for about two hours about all sorts of things mm. just you know like Life in London and all of, all of this, you know. And but I have a question, which I've always meant to ask you. I've known you since 1983, I think, or thereabouts, maybe even earlier. Oh. But there's a sweatband record. I swear we'll your voice is... We'll get to this. Okay, so <laughs> it is you. Well, yes, it, it is, is you. Yeah, there's and, a sweatband um, record. That, yeah, um, my my P-Funk name was... Because they didn't know my surname, so Bootsy and them all used to call me London Bridges. Because <laughs> I was from London and my name was Lloyd, so we had Lloyd Bridges. <laughs> it started off as Lloyd Bridges, then it became London Bridges, and then that was just abbreviated to London. <laughs> Which I was actually quite proud of. So you're London. On the sweatband cover, I'm down as Lloyd London Bridges. (laughs) I only have a single, you see. Oh, right. And I bought that years ago, and I'm like, that's fucking Lloyd. (laughs) (laughs) I've always meant to ask you, was that you? Yeah, yeah, it is. Tell us about how you became the Minister of Information for P-Funk. Well, I've relayed this story many times, and it's on a Mike Judge animated series called Tales from the Tour Bus, which, if you can access it, either through Amazon Prime or any other means, I urge you all to watch it. It's Mm -hmm. really entertaining. Basically, I was a white rock critic based in San Francisco for Rolling Stone magazine. 
And I'd done Journey, Ted Nugent, a bunch of... A lot of very funky acts. Yeah, (laughs) Starship, you know, all these, like, do I really need to listen to this, let alone write about it? But but one day, my editor, who was sort of a radical lefty from Chicago, a guy named Abe Peck, called me in and said, you know, you've done all this rock stuff, but do do you know much about R&B? And I said, well, yeah, I know a lot about it. And he said would you be interested in writing about R&B? And I said, more than this junk you're throwing at me. (laughs) And he said, well, who would you write about if you could write about anyone right now? Who would that be? And I said, the OJs, because they had I Love Music out at the time. So he said, sure, go ahead. So I flew down to L.A., got to see the OJs rehearse with famed Motown choreographer Charlie Atkins, which Mm -hmm. was a story in and of itself, did the interview with the OJs. The gist of the article was that Gamble and Huff's names were on OJ's album about a dozen times. Not once were all three individual OJ's names given in the album. Mm -hmm. So who are these guys, basically? So I write this article and it caused some uproar at Philly International. And then Gamble and Huff said, well, we want an article written about us. <laughs> What's the <laughs> okay, Why not? You know? yeah. So I flew to Philadelphia, interviewed Gamble and Huff, hung out with Bunny Sigler, famed mm-hmm. Philly soul man. Went to an MFSB taping, had a lot of incredible experiences there. Came back, wrote the article. Then, you know... Teddy Pendergrass, Johnny Guitar Watson, two or three others came along. And at that stage, and Lloyd will remember this, once you became a certified journalist, you would get boxes of albums Mm -hmm. delivered to your front door every day in flats. And every day I'd open them up and I'd go through them like, oh, this is rubbish. I don't really care about this. And I have one pile that would go back to the used record store and another pile that I would listen to. So I'm opening, opening, opening. One comes up with a guy coming out of a spaceship. And I go, wow, this looks pretty amazing. Let me put this this in the to-be-listened-to pile. Then another comes up with sort of this ghetto art, tales of kid funkadelic, or, you know, so let's take it to the stage. I can't remember which one. Mm. And I put them, as fate would have it, right on top of each other. So 10 minutes later, I'm going through and listening to each one of these. And I'm looking at all the album art, and I'm like, wait a minute. They're the same guys in both of these bands. How can this be? (laughs) They're signed to two two different different labels. (laughs) How does this work, you know? So I went down to the local used record store and bought every Parliament and Funkadelic record I could find came home and immersed myself into the world of George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic for the next week and listened to everything and heard the evolution and sort of the de-evolution of P-Funk, if you will, Mm. and then went into my editor and said, hey, can I write about these guys? And he said, sure, Mm. go ahead, you know? So I was supposed to go out on the road with them for three days. Three days turned into a week and... I got to hang out with Bootsy and George, and this was pre-mothership. Mm-hmm. They were selling out five, 6,000-seat arenas. So article ran, and I had a clever idea to put 
what we call the P-Funk and Wagnalls in there because I've always been a fan of slang. And George had a slanguage all of his own. <laughs> and so I added that aspect to it. And lo and behold, the article became a big success. You yeah. know, people really took notice. So three weeks later, sitting in my flat in San Francisco, phone rings. Hello? Hey, man, it's George. George, how you doing, man? What's up? Oh, everything's good, man. I can't thank you enough for that article. And I said, well, hey, that's what I do. You know, it's it's what I'm paid to do. I'm glad I could do it. I had a blast with you guys. He says, well, the party ain't over. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I want you to come and work for me. I go, what? <laughs> I said, George, I'm a white guy up here in San Francisco. <laughs> he says, you could be a purple guy from Mars. You know what the funk's about, and you got to help me spread the word. And I said... <laughs> Well, what's going on? He said, well, I'm going out on tour with a spaceship, mm. and I need somebody to kind of get the hip rock white press to pay attention to what we're doing. And would you be interested? And I said, well, wh when and how and what would you pay me and how would this all work? He said, I'll move you down to L.A., pay you $1,000 a month which in 1976 would be comparable to about $5,000 sure. a month mm -hmm. now. And if you want to do it, we'd love to have you come on board. And I said, I'm in. <laughs> so <laughs> I moved to L.A. and dove into this world that was life-changing for me. And, you know, I'm still pinching myself that I was a part of it because I went on to do a lot of different things in the music industry but of all the things I've done, Parliament Funkadelic resonates more with the listening audience, the young fans, mm -hmm. than any other aspect of anything I've ever been involved with. And I don't know if it's because of Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk, mm -hmm. or George announcing his retirement. But now more than ever, Parliament Funkadelic seems to be back in the spotlight. I think in a way, they never really quite went away. Certainly in this country, there's been a lot of interest for decades in Parliament Funkadelic. And yeah. it, it, it comes and goes a bit. But um, George was coming over here over the last five years with the P-Funk All-Stars, selling out big halls. It's, it's, never, it's, it's never gone away. Since you talked about the hip rock press, Tom, and... That leads me back to my memories of first meeting Lloyd. I had started writing on the enemy about, I guess, 81. And I was writing about some funk and soul and R&B and Danny Baker had written about. And then suddenly I see this byline, Lloyd Bradley. And, and I'm like, oh, fuck, this guy really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> 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 Shit. <laughs> the number's up, you know. Um, and, and then I guess I would have, I, what I remember is the, Prince Charles and the City Beat Band that you reviewed. It may, may have been one of the first things that you mm. reviewed for NME. Thank you. Uh, the first thing I did for NME was Cliff White. We mentioned him earlier. Mm. Yeah. Um, Cliff was at the NME, and Cliff was also at this magazine, Black Music, yes. and Jazz Review, or just became Black Music, a monthly, that operated in the same building as Blues and Soul. They were the same company. They were. And Cliff wrote for... Black music as well. Mm -hmm. Certainly did. And Neil Spencer was editor of the NME then. And 
They wanted to put together this two-part over centre spreads for two weeks of the enemy of the, the a funk wall chart, a wall chart that explained funk and its progression and origins. Yeah. And they didn't have anybody to do it, to be quite honest. They asked Cliff, and Cliff said, well, I couldn't do this, but there's someone I know from sort of downstairs at Blues and Soul that could. So yeah. Cliff phoned me, yeah. got me up, and I sketched it out with the art editor at the time. I had a really great afternoon, actually, sort of pissing about with this guy, art editor, Richard Shushak, I think his name He's was. Before my time. Uh, and uh, Neil sort of yeah. drifted in and out of the conversation. Cliff was there, but didn't really have much to do with it, you know. And, you know, we had a couple of beers out the editor's cocktail cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was all brilliant, and I just had a great time, and I thought, blimey, and I've contributed to the enemy, and they thought I was pretty cool, and I thought that was great. And then he offered me 50 quid. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and I said, 50 quid? He said, oh, yeah, for each week. So that's 100. I couldn't believe it. I just I said, I nearly said, you didn't have to pay me for this. I've had such a laugh. You <laughs> yeah, know. yeah uh, not not a not a sentence that's escaped your lips many times oh, since you know, then. And uh, it, was, it was just uh, it was just <laughs> astonishing. So because of that, then he said, "Oh, go and see the reviews editor. Get some albums to reviews." Oh, fine, mm. I did. Mm. And later on, he started asking me. What should they be looking at? That's when Prince Charles and the City Beat Band came in because I realised fairly quickly that my job at the NME was to identify upcoming young, or not necessarily young, but emerging black talents and do the first piece on them and then when they're a hit, hand them over to the white boys. <laughs> <laughs> so you often did, like, import, and that Prince Charles, I remember, yep, was on import. Yep. I did a one-page piece on Gil Scott Aaron when nobody had heard of him, and then, you know, became big. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, so on, you know, that's, uh, that was... That was your uh, role, yeah, yeah. that was your job. I yeah. mean, did you, yeah, I mean, was it was it a strange environment to come into? Was it, did you feel like at home there i mean what was it what was your experience i i certainly felt it got very intimidating but you're about six foot four (laughs) (laughs) sorry i think you've shrunken in since i last saw you you know i measured you when you came in um not really i mean it was just like a bunch of white boys that were full of themselves you know really i mean great i mean i did what I, i did what i had to do some guys I got on with, some guys I didn't, same as any office you're mm. going to wander into. I did what I had to do, and I didn't even resent the fact that every time, you know, an act I bought to the paper mm. crossed over, so to speak, that I then lost them. Because, to be quite honest, I didn't think I was good enough at the writing to do the uh, the big pieces. Well, so. this the first piece that we're going to feature on the homepage is neatly dovetailing, but it's this great piece you wrote on George Clinton in January 1983. Yeah, so I've been at the NMA for a couple of years right. by then, so I had a bit more confidence at that point. But it's a know, great piece, you know, know, and I think Computer Games has just come out. Because yeah, it was on Capital, it was done by Capital, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you talked to him about the disputes, you know, the Warner yeah. Brothers, the Roger Troutman mm-hmm. album. And it's an interesting thing he says about, he kind of disses Prince. Yeah. It's really interesting. Take Prince. I like his ideas and arrangements, but he lacks that total emotion behind the concept. So he ends up playing so light and so commercial. Ultimately, it's less enduring. 
<laughs> yeah. Do you know I can't argue with that now? <laughs> Another piece you wrote a little bit later, Lloyd, was about none other than Hothouse for Q in 1988. And my good friend Mark, the chief archivist of Roxburgh Pages, that was his band. Mm. And, and I don't know if you remember talking to Hothouse. I don't even know who Hothouse is. This is, this is marvellous. This is my old band. We, we were a blink and you missed it. English R&B band. Heather Small went on to Ben Peoples. Yeah, I, mean, I know who she is. Yeah, and you, you interview. I have no memory of this interview, but it's yeah, definitely more to say. But yeah. it's, it's it's definitely me because I certain <laughs> I certain terms like yes, I'm a bit long in the tooth to change now. I'm, I'm, at the age of thirty two, that's that's me. You know, <gasps> so it's just, just hilarious. No, I'm absolutely I can absolutely completely understand why you have absolutely no memory of this whatsoever. It's for Q. Neither of you has any memory of this. No. You may have spoken on the phone. Perhaps we just made this piece up and younger. attribute it to Lloyd. <laughs> I wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> but, um, the, um, the whole thing, really, is that with Q, because it was a monthly, it was that new format, you actually did more work during the month. There was more pages to fill, I think, features-wise. Mm-hmm. And so there was loads of these things where you'd just be thinking, do you want to do this? Oh, it's happening now, you know. Oh, we need it by tomorrow afternoon. And it's, you know, it's only it's a page up front, you know. And You're right. So the spirit of Q was such that you didn't say no to anything because you, I really enjoyed, like, that Working magazine, that. Mm. what it was, the people that were there, and their kind of excitement. Mm. About, yes. You know, people like Andy Gill. Yeah, the latest. Andy, Paul Denoyer, Andy Cowles, Mark Allen, you know, it was all real John Baldy. It was all really exciting, you know. So there was nothing you said no to for Q, even if you thought you perhaps weren't brilliantly qualified to do it or, you know, whatever. You say, yeah, I'll do it. If you think I'd do it, I'll do it. And so you'd end up doing these things, turning them over really quickly. So, of course, you kind of. Forget about them. I've, <laughs> I've probably forgotten a lot more. Uh, <laughs> remember hotels. Yes, <laughs> no, I'm not, I, I have no memory of this interview whatsoever. I can remember. A few yeah, you were a rock star, didn't you? You're I probably we were. We were a desperate failure, <laughs> to be honest. But you've just but been on tour with Barry White. At we, that we, point. We had, I mean, he doesn't we're get d- any we're bigger just, than we're just supported Barry White around England, yeah, um, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, which was a fairly kind of ghastly experience. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, Barry. I'll, I'll actually briefly talk about. Later, but his wife Glodine and his daughter were backing singers, and he wouldn't have them on stage with him. They were either behind panels to one side by the monitor mixing desk, or at the Albert Hall, they were in a backstage corridor, but dressed to the nines yeah. with, with, with the, the long nails. Long nails, oh, Glo- Glodine, about six inches. Glodine, right? you'd have to insert your hand to shake her hand without yeah, getting it lacerated. lacerated by her nails. And I learnt subsequently that actually they were on the way to divorce, that their okay. marriage was falling to pieces. He would go back to the Dorchester every night, regardless of where we were playing in England, or in one case, Scotland. And they would stay in the same hotel as the road crew. He'd go back to the Dorchester yeah. from Scotland and then go to back, back up to Sheffield. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That's dark, um, isn't it? Uh, Manchester Apollo, he was standing... with the Manchester Apollo is a big old-fashioned brick-built cinema. So when you're in a basement, the walls are really thick. It's just the nature of the way brick-built buildings are built. And we were in our dressing room, and he was outside talking to someone, and the plastic cups were vibrating on the counter in our dressing room because his voice was so low, it travelled through the wall. <laughs> 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 
Tom, so you, we were, Mark and I were talking this morning, saying, you know, reminding ourselves that we've wanted to have you on Rock's Back Pages for donkey's years. We even have your pieces, like, indexed, don't we? From, I mean, we do. you did stuff for that kind of soul R&B supplement that Phonograph Record right. did. Quite a few yes. copies of that in, yes. in the other room. And obviously we're not going to let you go today without like you know, signing <laughs> over your everything. So we're, we're glad you're here for, for, for that reason. Yeah, yeah. But you've had like a long and very distinguished career in the music industry. I mean, you essentially, I know you've always written and, and you still keep your hand in there, but essentially you've done a lot of A&R gigs. Billy Gibbons is someone and you've collaborated with you were telling me a great story about about Billy before we we started recording right I'm meeting him at a P-Funk gig meeting in, Billy Gibbons wow. at a P-Funk like gig Pine Bluff Arkansas or some buttfuck Oklahoma I mean God knows where it was <laughs> and usually I'd walk through the crowd and it would all be you know hardcore African American P-Funk fans I see these guys with beards and I go what the hell what are you guys doing here and then I look at it, wait a minute, you're the guys in ZZ Top. Yeah, hey, Billy Gibbons, uh, Dusty Hill, hey, nice to meet you. Who are you? Well, I work with P-Funk. You want to meet him? Yeah, sure. So I bring him back to meet George and everybody. Fantastic. And it's a love fest, and Billy says, hey, give me your card. So I give him my card, and I figure I'm never going to hear from this guy. Two weeks later, phone, ring. hey, Tom, Billy, hey, man, I'm going to be in town. Let's hang out. So... We've had almost as long as yeah. Lloyd and I, like a 40-year friendship. And as I was saying earlier, before the interview started, I did do a lot of different things with a lot of different artists. And I worked with, you know, when I was at A&M, Brothers Johnson, LTD, Jeffrey Osborne, mm-hmm, yeah. when I was at Capitol, I A&R'd a Peebo Bryson album. Worked with a number of Vanessa Williams, Brian McKnight McKnight, when I was with Mercury. But I've always had a fondness for R&B and soul and funk. And I've always had a sort of simpatico vibe with the musicians that create this music. Mm. And uh, to Lloyd's point earlier, there was sort of an apartheid, a cultural apartheid Mm. going about the white rock press, Mm -hmm. whether it was over here or in the U.S. Like with MTV, in the early days of MTV, there were the two or three chosen sort of Mm -hmm. crossover-y type acts that Rolling Stone would anoint with holy water. You know, Mm -hmm. Ike and Tina Turner, Jimi Hendrix or whatever. I'd say in this country, certainly the NME always exhibited a passion for black music. Right. Um, going right back to the sort of the early 70s. It, yeah, you know, I see Lloyd kind of like kind of creasing his face. But compared to the American press, the enemy really lavishly covered. And music. Cliff was writing as early as sort of 75, yeah. 76, um, and, you know, knowledgeably and but, passionately. But to your point, Cliff White, I love him to mm-hmm. death. A white guy. John Abbey, a white yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah, sure, sure. Me, a white yeah, guy. Yeah. Um, I, I mean... One thing about the, the American music press is, let's say, a magazine like Hullabaloo, I and mean, we got a, kind of quite a collection of stuff. You see Hullabaloo in, like, 68, 69, writing about black music quite extensively. By 1974, it's turned to circus, and you do not see a black face in the room at all. And it's partly a consequence of FM radio, the way FM right. radio developed into a really much more segmented thing than, than AM radio was. AM radio, like English pop radio in the 60s, you could hear the Supremes followed by Gene Pitney, followed by whatever... 
And suddenly when you can get a lot of individual stations, which are playlist dominated, that you get this real sort of apartheid appearing there. Yeah. And that reflects itself in the press. Mm. Right. Mm. I mean, Lloyd, I know you're at work on a book called Funk is Its Own Reward, aren't you? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Um, how, how long do we have to wait for that? And tell us a little bit about that. That will be, should be August next year. Okay. Um, and what is, I'm taking the same approach as I took with Bass Culture and Sounds Like London. Yes. And I'm reconnecting the music with the culture that created it because that's what you were talking about just now. When mainstream press and many, many, many authors have written about black music, they've essentially, it's essentially been a, a list of records and mm. seldom, as it going back and connecting with the culture that created it. There's a lot of what, 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 but there's never any why. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why the relationship between, say, black music, soul and reggae, and the mainstream press and media is so flimsy, mm -hmm. because that isn't there. It's seen as purely as entertainment. Here's a record, entertain me. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you make that record, you know? Which is one of the reasons why, if you look at the current situation, you look at grime dubstep mm -hmm. that has been marketed and created by the people it's for you know yeah. they have never that's never lost a it's connection, connection yeah. you know because they're in charge of yeah. it, yes. you know and why it's all over the charts as well because what you end up with then is a genuine expression mm -hmm. and i honestly believe and to tell you the truth the sales of bass culture and sounds like london mm -hmm. bear this out i mean bass culture is still selling 2000 copies a year exactly. 20 years later yeah, yeah, yeah. you know i can't remember what printing sounds like london's in yeah. now mm -hmm. but what it is i've always said that the mainstream public give them a bit more credit actually they're mm -hmm. a bit more robust than the guardians of our mm -hmm. culture think yeah. they are that yeah. actually most white people want to hear the real story mm -hmm. yeah. of what this was about, yeah. you know, and they can handle it. You know? I mean, it's very interesting about grime is because I mean, I've, it's not for me. It's no, absolutely no, not for no, me. No. But it's about and sounds like a London I recognise in it's, a way that I can't say that about any other music. You well, know, I'm going to interrupt you because uh, yeah. the one, I mean, when I wrote Sounds Like London, I realised that what it was for me and my experience, I understand grime is, London in the 21st century, mm -hmm. but for me, London in the 70s and 80s, yeah. so it was soul to soul was London, yes, sure. mm. totally London. Sure. That, yes. that sound and Jazzy B couldn't have happened anywhere other than yeah. London. Yeah. And yeah. because Jazzy was essentially in total charge of what he did, yeah. he, create, he presented the London that all kids, black, white, Indian, whatever, saw and heard. Mm -hmm. And they... They reacted to it immediately. Yeah. You know, it mm. wasn't a couple of fifty-year-old Oxbridge types in an A and R department saying, "Oh no, I don't think that's what the kids want." Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah was, This was actually it. And yeah. grime, dubstep, and all of those. I mean, they the stars evolved so fast. Mm -hmm. There's probably been a new one since I came in here. But, um, <laughs> uh, what it is is it's unfiltered. It's it's. Yeah. It reflects them completely. Mm. It's sound system culture. Yeah. It's this is what our audience mm. wants, so this is what we're going to yeah. do. Yes, yes. With the additional advantage that the means of production are at hand in a way that they never were before. Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. Also, I really believe, you know, and this is probably straying off our original point, but if people like Dennis Bavell and 
you know, Lloydy Coxon mm. and the greats of London sound systems had had the internet and digital technology. Yeah. They'd rule the world by now, mm. I'm sure of it. Because they, they were so smart and so entrepreneurial and so mm. in brave. such In yeah. such difficult circumstances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the, the third piece that I chose to feature you on the homepage, like, it's a piece about Jazzy B, essentially about Soul to Soul, looking back with Jazzy B, on those great years and the sound system background they came out of. So it's very apposite that you mentioned that, and I know it sounds like London is, you know, the sort of definitive book on on this yeah, on I, this I, sound. I love that book. I thought it was really, really, really fabulous. I mean, interesting. I mean, I think we should bring Tom in here because, you know, you could get me back next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what sound system culture was like was the same as the black radio in America. You know when that boomed in the 1970s, early 1970s? Yeah. It ripped the lid off black music suddenly, you know. It did. I mean, when... Frankie Crocker had the number one rated BLS mm -hmm. station in New York, and he was the number one rated DJ. Mm -hmm. That shone a light on this in such a way that it benefited George specifically because, you know, what had become an underground or what had been looked at as an underground phenomenon was now not only getting mainstream radio play, but selling in million mm -hmm. lots of records and creating a cultural impact above and beyond what anybody anticipated. Mm. And it helped George a lot in that George never wanted to cross over to pop radio. That wasn't his goal. Mm -hmm. His goal was to cross over to AOR rock radio. Now, the fact that black radio became so important and such a heavy thing all the major labels figured, we got to get a piece of this P-Funk thing, mm -hmm. which was both a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing in that Bernie Worrell, the Horny Horns, uh, Brides of Funkenstein, mm -hmm. Eddie Hazel, all these offshoots of George's uh, P-Funk empire all got record deals. But the downside was it stretched George yeah. way too thin, way, way, way too yeah. thin. Mm -hmm. And between being in the studio, every time he wasn't on the road, he was in either Hollywood or Detroit recording. It just got to the point where between the drugs, mm -hmm. the <laughs> touring, the studio, he was, I think, physically and sort of mentally exhausted. Yeah, he was hanging out with Sly Stone as well. Which pretty that's good, not, that's good not for anyone's health. Tom, staying stateside... It leads us actually quite neatly into a discussion of the week's audio. As you may or may not know, we feature a new audio interview every week. And, and, and this is an interview with Hal David of Backrack and David fame. Next week, Bert Backrack, 90 years old, will be performing just literally about a quarter of a mile away yes. at, at the Eventum Apollo, the old Hammersmith. He's doing a week of shows there at 90, which is, which is amazing. But everything we've talked about just sort of makes me Think of the, that very interesting time in New York where you you had you know you had the Brill Building, you had those sort of songwriting factories, and the story that Hal talks about, a lot about in this audio is very much about this this musical romance between Bert and Hal 
and and Dion Warwick. Um, and I just thought I was just going to quickly ask you about your your sort of memories of particularly Backrack and David's version of soul. If you want to call it soul, I don't know, or just or just extraordinary pop music. Right. Do you well, remember listening to those records? Oh, as a, as a, I, I actually saw Dion Warwick in a nightclub that subsequently burned down in a Italian lightning storm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great phrase. (laughs) Where all of a sudden, this famed nightclub just went up in smoke. But I did see Dionne Warwick in this period. I did read Bert's autobiography Mm -hmm. recently. Though we didn't perceive it per se as quote-unquote soul music because it was so refined Mm -hmm. and so orchestrated. But reading Bert's autobiography, I realized all the great records he made pre-Hal David. And then when Hal came into the mix and they had their run with Dion, it was just over the moon. But again, that, when I was talking about George wanting to cross over to rock radio, Hal and Bert were crossing over to pop radio with very very refined Mm. records and artists that, as Motown was doing the same sort of thing, this had less of the soul component, maybe because you didn't have the Funk Brothers mm-hmm. and and the studio musicians. And, and it was very much balanced as well. It was it wasn't like dance music. This was right, you know. It's a, but some of the greatest, I would say, Black American voices yeah. that we've ever heard. You know, I mean, even people like Lou Johnson. I, you know, Luther Vandross's cover of Vandross later, obviously, doing a house is not a home. Yeah, but yeah. Mark, why don't we listen yeah, to well, a clip uh, from Mark? Well, let's listen to actually precisely about this. It's about they'd written Make It Easy on Yourself. Dion had demoed it. We forget that Dion started off as their demo singer. Right. And anyway, it becomes a huge hit for Jerry Butler. So let's listen to that clip. And one day uh, we wrote a song called Make It Easy, I just thought, and, uh, and we got Dion in to make the record, make the demo. And, and we made the demo, it was quite wonderful. And we were, Bert, Bert was, we were still a period we were with famous music. <clears throat> and we played it for the publisher, Eddie Walton, the head of Famous at the time. And he liked it, and uh, he took it to, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, made the first big record. But anyway, Dion got very upset when the record came out. It became a big hit. Uh, and she said, I thought that was my song. We said, no, wait, you just made a demo. <laughs> oh, no. She said, no, that was my song. And she was really very hurt and angry. Yeah. And then we realized, you know, here's this wonderful singer, and we're using it to make demos. I mean, she could be a star. And we took those demos to uh, Scepter Records, a woman named Florence Greenberg who ran Scepter Records, and we got her a contract. And then we went in and started to record it. The first one was Don't Make Me Over. Don't make me over. So I mean, that's really interesting, is that, I mean, he talks in this interview about how, in a way, the two of them and Dion were, were a trio. I mean, he actually describes them as that. He also talks later on in the interview about how they fell out 
around a time when Bert started making his own records and Dion was fed up. Where's my songs? Mm. You know, because yeah. Bert was writing just for himself. And in fact, he said, he said they, they've all made it up, all kissed and made up, they're all friends. But, and he talks about the, we'll play a clip later about being in the Brill building, this tiny cubicle with a piano and a desk, writing the songs with Bert Bacharach. He talks about his favourite songwriters he admires, Johnny Mercer in particular, a big one that he, he loved. Not feeling threatened by the Beatles and Dylan and so on and so forth, because in, in a sense they were continuing to have hits while that was going on, so it wasn't in the same way as a lot of American acts were really threatened by that. Having Paul Simon being one of his demo singers back in the Brill Building before Paul Simon became mm. Simon Garfunkel. And his pleasure in the revival of interest in their work in the present day. He's delightful. He comes over as a really... really He's really charming, isn't he? I mean, it's great to hear him. And even though we've all heard stories of the Brill building, it's great to hear someone like Hal David actually describing what it was like to work in these tiny, air conditioner. tiny little op- rooms. You couldn't open the window because the air conditioner was in and on all year round, you know. Yeah. He talks beautifully as well about the bittersweet quality of the great Bacharach and David yeah. songs. That they're, they're simultaneously jaunty and sad, and, mm. uh, which is a great word. Yeah. There is a jauntiness often, but the melodies are so... Mm. Tom, you, I know you're itching to say something well, about Bert What, what, what I wanted to say to, wasn't specifically about Bert Bacharach or Hal David, but about music publishing and how, again, that's sort of the blessing and curse of the music industry. All of the British acts who, Beatles, Stones, etc., who went either over the U.S. or had people like Phil Spector or Gene Pitney with the Stones come over here, learned quickly that, yeah, you know, you can make a lot of money in this business, But the long-term real money is in music publishing. Mm. And music publishing is, you know, been downplayed by, oh, it's it's coupon clippers. Oh, you're only making, you know, pennies. Why, Why bother with that? But if you wrote a hit song... It's still making you money. Yeah. I mean, it, and and this it, is creating... Even if you don't write a hit, but it gets played on the radio for yes. some reason. I mean, I had well, my old band, Hot House, we had run some single week radio one for two weeks. Shame you couldn't actually buy the record because the record company couldn't get it in the store. <laughs> but, it, but it was played like four or five times a day. And I got a check for like £4,000 just for like two weeks of, yeah. you know... And it's caused more bands, artists, situations yeah. to implode mm. than any other who's got, who's got the publishing? Who's got the publishing? Yeah. And the most important thing to tie it back into George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, George and the original parliaments drove from Plainfield, New Jersey to Detroit to try out for Motown. And, you know, like Motown had the Temptations, Smoking the Miracles, mm-hmm. the Four Tops, blah, blah, blah. Here come these sort of odd-looking characters. One's, you know, five foot two. The other's six foot four. You know, they they don't really look the part. Mm. Blah blah blah. And after the rehearsal, Barry Gordy look, looked at him and said, eh, "Now we've got the temptation. We got mm-hmm. the tops. But who wrote all these songs?" And George <laughs> kind of, well, I did. And he said, "I want to give you a publishing deal." So George was signed to a publishing deal at Joe Bat yeah. very early on. And not only did that give him a lot of knowledge about songs and songwriting, but also about music publishing, mm-hmm. which then created further issues down the road when Funkadelic started to hit and then Parliament started to hit. 
and people didn't feel they were getting their fair yeah. share of what they were entitled for. And there was also a lot of people. I mean, wasn't that also a problem? That was the, the, between the two bands and the whole organization and all the sub-bands, that George had a lot of people on his payroll, yeah. and people started seeing some people getting more than others. And well, let's just take their biggest hit, Give Up the Funk, mm-hmm. Tear the Roof Off. The drummer, Jerome Braley, came up with all those amazing drum breaks mm-hmm. and stops and hitting it hard on the one. and. And really adding a dimension to that track that is undeniable. Mm-hmm. So George gave him a piece of the publishing mm-hmm. on that song. And six months later, he gets his first publishing check. That was it. He was done. Hey, see you guys. Bye. He quit the band and <laughs> formed his own band called Mutiny mm-hmm. and had sure. an album called Mutiny mm-hmm. on the Mothership. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, other members of the band start like a light bulb started going right. off over other people's heads. Like, wait a minute, mm. how come Jerome left? Well, didn't you hear he just got a check for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars? <laughs> yeah, really? What? How come? Yeah. Well, he co-wrote "Tear the Roof Off." Mm. Well, I had a piece of such and such, and George never gave me credit mm-hmm, for that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And I've seen music publishing and credits break up more bands Absolutely. and mess up more situations. Mm-hmm. I think we're probably kind of coming to, we're going to have to move over to the to what is new, What's new? for uh, subscribers in the library this yeah. week. Feel free to sort of chip in. Absolutely. But this is like, these are some of the more interesting pieces that are going into the library. I mean, it's a fairly short list this week. Fats Domino being interviewed by David Griffith's The Record Mirror in 67. Very first time Fats Domino had come over. A lot of other American rock and rollers and R&B artists have been over in, in the late 50s and early 60s. First time Fats Domino. And he's loving it, you know. But he's asked about, you know, you've done well, you've got this big house in New Orleans. He says, I spend an awful lot of money, you know. That home costs $15,000 a month just to run. And I've got eight children. They's up a lot, you know. It's a very sweet, very short, short interview. Jimmy Page interviewed by Chris Welch, Melody Maker 70. I mean, it's the usual Jimmy Page flannel, you know, with Welch being kind of rather too accommodating. But he says, Robert is a Leo, which makes him a perfect leader with two Capricorns on either side and a Gemini behind. (laughs) Brian Case, a profile, a kind of retrospective on Albert Isler, Enemy 74. Brian Case is a writer I I really, really loved when I started reading The Enemy. And he's talking about Milford Graves, who's a really great jazz drummer. Love Cry has the simple counterpoint of the horns underpinned by the spectacular Milford Graves. Gunslinger fast, Graves works his drum kit from all points of the compass. Never still. Snick, click, sneeze, bang, gong, like a claim jumper panning a riverbed. And then as Isla did a kind of obligatory sort of jazz funk record, which by all counts is pretty terrible. And uh, Brian Case lays into Bernard Pretty Purdy. 
As an innocent primitive form for the Isla energy, rock is corsets, too rhythmically static. The electric bass comes on like sinus trouble, and if Pretty Purda's drumming has a backbeat you can't lose it, he's also got a pair of ears you can't find them. Ooh. Savage. Uh, Philip Norman Barry White, reviewing Barry White at the Albert Hall in, uh, for the Times in 1975. There remains something unearthly in the success enjoyed by Barry White. He's a black singer, extremely overweight, whose songs invariably express agitation at the prospect of imminent sexual intercourse. And uh, later on, this, I myself received a very good view of Barry White since immediately he appeared, he left the stage and advanced up the aisle towards me with the palpable intention of shaking my hand. The effect at close quarters of such a stout, velveteen man holding in one hand a microphone, a lighted cigarette and several jewelled rings was, to say the least, intimidating. In the event, however, he changed his mind and shook the hand of the person behind me. <laughs> Feels so good. You're lying here next to me. Paul Gamertini briefed into Mick Jagger, and Mick Jagger is at this point sort of proposing he was going to go to university to study history. This is in 1976. It's kind of limiting, in a way, using your intellect to write songs like Brown Sugar. <laughs> Keith Moon, obviously Simon Frith had been commissioned to write a review of... Which album would that have been, 1978? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And anyway, Keith Moon dies, so it turns into a semi-obituary for Keith. The Who is dead now, too. Whatever the remaining three do, they won't be the Who again. Even in technical terms, no drummer will ever be able to recreate Keith Moon's extraordinary controlled anarchy, his stuttering hands and solid feet. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Absolutely. Um, Barbara Ellen meets Kellis Matthews of Catatonia in 98. She says, looks-wise, Matthews was born in the wrong era. Her face belongs to one of those fallen girls from worthy 60s films who end up pushing a pram around cobbled streets, looking tough and beautiful in slingbacks and a cross-wrap apron. <laughs> and it's actually it's quite, quite, quite that good. That sounds about right. And lastly, again, it's Barbara Ellen reviewing Eminem at London Story in 1999. I wish Eminem had been even half as good at your stories as on record. As it is, he's so sloppy, so disengaged, that I can hardly make out which songs he's playing. Hi, my name is... There's a DJ behind him who couldn't scratch his way out of a tray of cat litter. Another sidekick is plodding about dressed as a magic mushroom, but it really isn't funny. Eminem just stands there, rummaging about in his sweatsuit pants and ranting yobbishly. After the crowd boo him, he trudges back on stage, indignant and bellows his way through his biggest hit, Guilty Conscience. I saw Eminem the following year at the London Docklands Arena, and it was terrible. And the question is, how often and how can hip-hop be a good show in a large room? Lloyd, do you have any sort of... Have you seen many hip-hop shows which have lit you up as live shows? Early hip hop shows. I'm not seeing too many. I mean, not seeing too many late, mm-hmm. later hip hop shows. I mean, Run DMC were always spectacular yeah. to watch in whatever size. I mean, I think if you work to tailor your show to an arena mm-hmm. size, which Run DMC clearly did, yeah. you know, then yeah, yeah. You know, so I saw the Beastie Boys as well. I mean, this is. I mean, I'm going back to the kind of Def Jam. Era, yeah, sure. Quite clearly. Rick Rubin or somebody mm-hmm. was teaching them how to do this, yeah. you know, because I remember at the Philadelphia Spectrum seeing uh, the Beastie Boys with Public Enemy open yeah. for right. them. That was a great show. Yeah. Um, Public Enemy put on a yeah. great show as well. Yeah. But again, we're talking about all 
the same era, yes, you know, yeah, and essentially yeah. the same people. You know, Houdini put on a great show I'm as well. Just, uh, but that was more like a, that was like a, a very slick R and B show. Yeah. You know, I, I saw a very late period of L Cool J depping for a missing Lauren Hill's free concert in Chicago in the Grant Park, and he was astonishing good. And I, I was expecting absolutely nothing, but this guy had an absolute command of the audience, the dynamics, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, a, and a really great DJ behind him, really pr- cutting up the records, you know. But then again, he's from that... That era. That, he's that, from, that stable, a, you know, he was a Def Jam artist. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I saw LL Cool J at Hammersmith Odeon, and I think it was Houdini opened mm. for him, and they were... It was yeah. really good. Yeah, in big arenas. They could command yeah. a big arena. Because uh, Eminem... I mean, he was, it was basically people stomping around the stage just shouting. There was no sort of... I mean, there was a lot of stage set, a lot of presentation, but there was no sort of sense of engagement with the audience. It just sounded like sort of unfiltered anger just being belted through a microphone. It was that very, wasn't, wasn't that his USP? Well, I suppose unfiltered it was, but it anger doesn't make for a great a live show. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I, I, that was interesting reading her actually more of seeing exactly the same thing year before I saw yeah, pretty much that exactly interesting. that. interesting. Mm. I saw Snoop live once, and this was very, very early mm. on in the Snoop canon. Yeah, yeah. You know, this would have been doggy style. Yeah. Time. And his show was distinctly underwhelming. I mean, it, was, it really did quite surprise me. Which how, is a shame. Because, how bad it was, because the album was so good. Yeah, you know? and he's a very musical rapper. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the way in which he mm. uses his voice is actually very beautiful mm. and should be able to translate. Mm. It's, it's true. So, I mean, you know, your point is that the early guys developed... A sort of sense of how to present themselves. Um, Seem to. Uh, and that's been lost somewhere in the process. Well, from my perspective, what happened was you have to realize that black artists playing in large arenas mm-hmm. worked to a lot, you know, Rick James, P Funk, mm-hmm. Stevie, Prince, Prince, blah, blah, blah. When rap came in in the initial stages, mm-hmm. like, like what Lloyd's talking about. Mm-hmm. There was a certain joy element to it and a certain empowerment, public enemy, things like that. When it became sort of angry and pissed off, that became scary to not the powers that be, but to the general audience. They didn't want it necessarily like the Beastie Boys acting stupid or Run DMC, My Adidas or or what's his name, Cool Mo D or any of these guys. Mm-hmm. It was funny. It was joyous. It had a, a sense of life to it. Yeah. When it came later into sort of braggadocio about, yeah. you know, how many people you shot or how many, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know if I want to know that much about mm. this, you know? And all of a sudden, the large arenas wouldn't allow a public enemy in, you know? The Beastie Boys always could get in because they were white. Mm-hmm. But there was a certain fear factor, and that hasn't dissipated. I mean, there are very few big, I'm going to say, arena-style hip-hop shows going on anymore, at least over here. Interesting thing. You know my son, George? Yeah. Um, George, about uh, about three months ago, I think, went to see 50 Cent Mm -hmm. at the O2. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly, he said it was fantastic. He said he came because he's a... 50 Cent fan from back in the day. And this was a sort of 20th anniversary, mm-hmm. 30th anniversary tour. And the way he described it, it's quite clear, because you know Fiddy's making a fortune out of his film company and all of this I at the moment. Know. Yeah, TV. He's got a piece of that 
TV series Power and this sort of stuff, right. you know, and he's pumping out kind of pulp fiction films, mm-hmm. you know. And it was almost as if he'd done this to celebrate who he was and who put him there because from how George described the show to me, it seemed highly unlike, you know, that he was ever going to make any money. Mm-hmm. And he said he was really personable, clearly enjoying himself, just wanted to be there mm-hmm. to recreate his old self and have a bit of fun. Yeah, and, yeah. And George said it was it was probably the best show he's ever seen. That's great. Know? Wow. It's good. Great. Well, gentlemen, I think we are Done. very close to being out of time. I just want to say on behalf of both of us and, and, and all of us here at RBP, just what a great pleasure it's been to have you both reminiscing and sharing your thoughts with us. Tom, you're visiting, obviously. I think you're over here mainly for Wimbledon, well, is that I, correct? I have it's a very, very sort of hip-hop how kind can of thing I say to do. I, I love the UK. Um, yeah. I grew up outside of Boston, and when all the big English acts would come over to the States, the first place they would play is Boston. So I saw the Beatles, I saw the Stones with Brian Jones, Cream, Jeff Beck with Rod Stewart, all the big Brit acts. Yeah. So I've always had sort of a love affair with the UK. And everybody said, hey, have you been to England? Well, yeah, where'd you go? Well, I went to London. Well, yeah, that's great, you know. Uh, From having British friends like Lloyd and a few others, I've learned about all the myriad of beautiful places that are sort of under the radar to most Americans. So... I've been to the Cotswolds, the Lake District, Devon, Cornwall, Mm. the borders, places that most Americans don't go. Mm. And in so doing, my appreciation for your country has gotten bigger. I love tennis. I've been playing since I was 12 years old. I have an inn at Wimbledon, which has allowed me to go, which is, if you're an American, just to get a ticket is Mm. a, Mm. a very difficult and sometimes costly affair. So for me to be able to go to Wimbledon has been Valhalla. I call it the Sistine Chapel of tennis. That's great. So it's been great. Tom, while you're here, maybe you can help to find a new ambassador. (laughs) 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 That that might just, you know, meet Donald Trump's approval. So, you know, we've got a couple more days. I think it's way too heavy lifting (laughs) and way above my pay grade to come up with that, you know? (laughs) Well, listen, you know, Welcome back to, to England and to London. Lloyd, thank you so much for allowing me to bully you into coming out today. <laughs> you won't uh, do I it hope again. you thought it was worth it, because it's been really a joy to just, you know, to see your friendship and, and to hear your stories. And I hope you'll come back again sometime. And we are going to play out with another clip from yeah, the, the late, great uh, Haldo. This is 1999, talking like, to Adam Sweet. Yeah, this is him talking about their room in the Brill building and the, the process in which he'd right with Burt Bacharach. So thanks very much. See you next week. week. We used to sit in the room in in the Brill Building, uh, which I guess it was the Tin Pan Alley of our time, and we had a small office at at Famous Paramount, which is the arm of Paramount uh, Music, you're publishing a Paramount film and uh, we had a room that was very narrow you you know there was an upright piano that Bert sat at and right next to it to the right was a desk with a chair and then to walk from the door 
to my desk and pass the, the chair or the piano, two people couldn't get through. You could only be one at a time. There was an air conditioner in the window, so you couldn't open the window. So we had air conditioning on, winter and summer. And, uh, and we'd sit there and, and you know, we'd meet each day and we'd start with the, uh, Burke would have some melody phrases written down and he'd play them for me and, you know, I would like this one and not so sure that one would, and I'd have some titles or lines and I'd show it to him and he would like this one and maybe not that one and we'd find something that we both liked and we'd start writing that song, whether it was from the melody side or the lyric side. Oh, how can I forget you? When there is always something there to remind me Always something there to remind me I was That was Hal David in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 1999, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guests Lloyd Bradley and Tom Vickers. Lloyd's website is lloydbradley.net, where you can find details of his work, including his books Bass Culture and Sounds Like London. Tom's website is tomvickers.com, where you can find information about his work and about Tales from the Tour Bus. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Muris and Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Ah!